You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Um, very special co-host with me today, Mrs. Shannon Rich, the CEO of the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, who I'm thrilled to partner with in 2020. I'm excited to have you on as a co-host for the first time. I'm excited. Um, we've had we've done an episode already, which I'll link in the description for people who don't know Shannon can go back and listen to that. Absolutely loves Oklahoma more than I do, which <laughs> is hard to imagine, but she does. Um, Thanks for, for really arranging, arranging this, this this podcast today. Um, before I introduce our guest, I'm going to read off um, the biography just to give everyone listening some context. So, um, Dr. George Henderson joined the University of Oklahoma faculty in 1967. He and his wife, Barbara Henderson, were the first African-American couple to purchase a home in Norman, that house which we are in recording today, which I find amazing. I'm a real estate agent, so that to me is, that's cool. Um because Oklahomans, we seem to move around a lot, and people from back home in Wales don't. So that reminds me of home. That's awesome. Um, Dr. Henderson is the author of 28 books and has served as the dean of OU's College of Liberal Studies. In 1969, he founded the Department of Home and Rela- Human Relations, in which... Uh, home and Relations. I can't speak today. Human Relations, in which he served as the director. Dr. Henderson was the first African-American in the state of Oklahoma to hold an endowed professorship. Um, working alongside uh, and with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Bud Wilkinson, Dick Gregory, and Bill Russell, Dr. Henderson took the decision to support nonviolence while seeking equality for African-Americans. Um, a visit to Little Dixie, which is Durant for everyone listening today, made him realize um, he was ready to die for racial equality, uh, something that as we go on current events, this is you know a huge topic at the moment, but a topic that has been going on not just at the moment, but throughout um Dr. Henderson's life and lives before that. Um, so Dr. Henderson and his fellow activists set in motion many institutional changes that continue to this day. His book, Race and the University, may be purchased at the museum bookstore, uh, which I'll also link that below for everyone listening. Definitely a great book. I know, Shan, you have that with you today, right? I have this new you book. You have yeah. the new book with us mm-hmm. today, so we're going to pull some notes from that. Um, Dr. Henderson's name has become synonymous with efforts to promote diversity, interracial understanding. Um, it's it's an absolute honor to me to be here, and especially in the house, to talk to you about everything that you've done um, coming to Norman and, and obviously current events today. Uh, but you know, this this is an awesome partnership made possible by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. And Shannon, I want to thank you and everyone at the Hall of Fame for this opportunity because. It's going to be an awesome podcast. I know just, I wish we were recording like five minutes ago because the stories you guys are talking about um, as a podcast of that stuff just geeks me out a little bit. But um, Dr. Henderson, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks for inviting me. Um, before, I think, I think people, I mean, that's a that's the longest introduction I've ever done to a podcast and that's very well deserved. Um, take us back to right, right to the start. Like, where are you born? Hertzboro, Alabama. Gosh, abject poverty, Uh, mother, father, grandfather, grandmother, and I lived in a little shack 
And that's all that it was. It was a one-bedroom uh, dwelling in Hertzboro with all of those generations there, the sharecroppers, poor. Uh, my father was run out of Alabama uh, by the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, the norm in, in Hertzboro and other southern cities were fairly straightforward. Black people were subservient uh, to white people. And in Hertzboro, one of the norms was is when it was raining, uh, the black people had to get off of the little wooden plank and walk in the mud so that the white people could, could remain relatively uh, dry. My father decided that he wasn't going to yield a plank to a white male. But he took his arrogance just a tad too far, uh, his, my wife uh, chuckled later. He knocked the white male into the mud. A few hours later, we packed all of our belongings and we moved from the poverty of the South to poverty of the North, East Chicago, Indiana. For those who don't understand that aspect is that hundreds of thousands of black people moved from the South to the North, but they moved in clusters. We moved into a community that was mostly Alabama and Georgia people. Uh, the Mississippi, Arkansas, and the other people, they had their own areas. This is where kin, taking care of kin. But let me back up for a moment and tell you about my mother. When I was born, she said that she looked at me and she told everyone watching, the, uh, the midwife and others, that this baby is going to be the one to take our family out of poverty. Every poor mother says that, believe me. They all wish that for their child, but my mother was a prophet. She was absolutely correct. This baby did indeed take his family out of poverty, first to graduate from high school, college, first everything. But the significance of that to me is even broader. My nickname in East Chicago was Red, and in, in, in Alabama was Red. I had no idea, why people call me Red? Well. My father's mother, on whose land we lived, was a Native American. And my mother said that she held me and she looked at me and she said, this is my little Red. And that's how I got that name. And I, I didn't know why in the world people were calling me Red. Yeah. It was her. But my family never talked about that side of it. Uh, they just simply didn't. East Chicago, Indiana. Uh, a new beginning? Not really. The poverty of the South was not much different than the poverty of the North, except it was in the North it was a bit more sophisticated. I lived in places for 12 years. I never had a room. For 12 years, my bed was a pull-out bed under the couch in the living room. We lived in places that were too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter dilapidated structures that absentee owners refused to repair. I grew up with roaches, bed bugs, and rats. We were poor. I know poverty. I know what dirt poor means because we were dirt poor. On and off welfare, we rarely had a full meal of anything. I learned to make uh, sandwiches out of just bread uh, and, and, and pretend that I had things on it. Uh, but back to my mother again. Whenever we did have a good meal, and a good meal meant uh, uh, we had chicken. And we had one scrawny chicken usually. And my father and I ate, and my mother 
would say, as we were looking at the last few couple of pieces, and says, George, you and Kid, that was my father's name, you can have that. My mother always said she was going to eat later. Darn it, I was in college and it dawned on me, mother never ate later. Later never came for her. She sacrificed so that the men could be fed. That was my mother. My mother told me that I love you almost every day of my life, and she would hug me and tickle me. And I was always kind of a serious kid, and she would tell me raunchy jokes to make me laugh. That was my mom. But then that was my mother's sister because my mother had me when she was 16 and a half years of age. My father was 21. I was, I was her child, but I was also her brother. My mother taught me to accept people and to share what little we had. My very first birthday when I was 11, 12 years, when I really wanted something very important, a tricycle, my father bought boxing gloves. I'll never forget that Christmas. After we had chicken, we went downstairs into where the, uh, we had a shed for storage. We went under the shed and my father put the gloves on and he put, and he put his on and he beat me. And that was a ritual. That was the ritual for about three weeks. Eat, go downstairs, box with dad, get beat up by dad. And finally, when I was able to fight back, my father looked at me and said, son, now you're ready for the world. He said, you're a black boy and you're gonna be a black man in this world. And you've got to fight, you've got to fight for yourself and for your family. My mother didn't like that exercise because my mother was a very religious person. My mother taught me to love, my father taught me to fight. But my father also taught me what the limits of the fighting was. Don't fight white people. They have a license to kill you. But when black, black boys, indeed, challenge you, you accept the challenge. You, so I was, I grew up fighting. I knew how to fight. I also, the other side of me, I, I love my mother's love more than I love my father's fighting. And I'll never forget, I was about 14 and a half, maybe 15. It was a Saturday. And mom came to me and she says, George, tomorrow we're going to church. I said, but dad doesn't go. And she says, I'm not your father's mother, but I'm yours. You're going to church. This is not a conversation. Get ready. That was my first experience in church. And it was the first of a lot of experiences. My mother was my first social secretary. All the girls were there. Darn it. For the first five Sundays, I chased girls. I didn't catch any. But I chased and I ran. And finally, when I was tired, after about two weeks of that nonsense, I sat down and I listened to the minister. Never forget that sermon. At the end of it, it says, God is love. Period. That's a complete sentence. Not hatred, not bigotry, not all of the other things that we're dealing with in this world. Love. And I said to myself, I've always had these weird thoughts, I, I consider them weird thoughts, about what my life was going to be and why it was and so forth. And I said to myself, if God can love a poor kid like me, then surely, surely there's a place for me in this world. And love, that love message kept coming through again and again and again. My mother prepared me for Martin Luther King Jr. She also then made it illogical and irrational for me to accept Martin's offer to join him. But that was, that was just the beginning of that experience. I started education in special education. 
were we were labeled educationally retarded. <laughs> they didn't call us that. The kids in Garfield Elementary School were labeled bluebirds, robins, and crows. And we had a, a picture of the little bird that we were. Guess who the crows were? We were the special ed kids. The crows had a room sandwiched between woodshop in the basement and, and home ec in, in, on the other side. We were destined to be nothing except a wasted efforts that would spend time in school until we got old enough to get a job. And believe me, I understood this. In our community, male and female children, you had 18 years at most if you were in a home. And when you turned 18, you either had graduated from high school with what, or, or not, but you were going to get out of the house and get a job. And if you didn't get out of the house, you're going to pay rent because people had to survive. Well, I was fortunate. No, I was blessed, to be honest. Special education. The special ed teacher somehow just liked me. Now, liking me was not an easy chore. I was, I was such a delinquent till I organized a little gang. We controlled the east door of Garfield Elementary School, and all of the kids going in had to pay me five or ten cents depending on what my needs were that week. And if they didn't, uh, the big guys working for me would beat them up. I was a hoodlum. And the special ed teacher liked me. I guess she liked me because I, I had an there was an attitude about me. If I, if I didn't like something, I would say it, and if I couldn't win the argument, I'd just shut down and stop talking. I was her challenge. I remember her, too. I remember the day that she asked me to stay after school. She said, George, sometimes you do well in my, in my class. You, 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 you're active, you participate, and in, in, in you're learning. Why, why don't you just really be a good student that you can be? And I said to her, why should I? I'm poor. I'm on welfare. I get one pair of jeans a year and one pair of shoes and some socks. I live in a segregated neighborhood. Why should I get a good education? I'll get a job or something, but I, education, I don't need that. And she said, it's true that you're poor. I can't do anything about that. It's true that you're black. I can't do anything about that either. It's true that you live in a racially segregated community, and I can't do anything about that, but you can do something about all of those things if you got a degree. First a diploma, and then a degree. She knew George Henderson. I responded, yeah, sure, tough stuff. And she said, she knew how to trigger me. I'm not too sure you can do any better. You want to get George, did you tell him what he can't do? Yeah. She pushed my button, and I said, I can. Ah, then she says, no, I've given up on you. And I followed her out the door, says, please, please, and says, okay. She took me home to my mother. Never forget that either. She said, Mrs. Henderson, George and I had a conversation, and he's going to try to be a better student. And my mother cried, and she said, thank you, Lord. I can still hear, thank you, Lord. Because my mother always wanted me to go to college, Tuskegee. She grew up near Tuskegee. She knew where the college was. My mother had the equivalent of a sixth or a seventh grade education, but she wanted me to go to Tuskegee to get a good education. And that was that made me feel good because my mother, my mother saw something that made her happy and heard something that made her happy. And let me say now, to set the record straight, 
all of my teachers from kindergarten through good gracious 12 years of uh, elementary secondary four years of college all of them were white so the good the bad and the ugly were white people and yet I dislike white people and here was this thing here was a special ed teacher ha my mother agreed that I would stay 15 to 20 minutes uh, later or go to school 15 to 20 minutes earlier and she worked with me and a couple of other kids and at the end of the school year, we were learning. We were indeed getting this thing called an education. And then the other traumatic moment for me and turning point for me, really. At the end of the school year, she took me to Miss Gosh, the principal. Miss Gosh and I were on very good terms because as a leader with the Linkwood Gang, she uh, <laughs> had me in the office periodically to... Uh, you were regular. To, to uh, <laughs> encourage me to do better with that panel that she put on my rear. So Miss Gosh laughed and said, do you want me to beat him now or later? Miss Johnson said, none of those things, uh, Miss Gosh. I want George Henderson retested. And she was holding my hand. And Miss Gosh didn't respond. And I, 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 I remember this also. Miss Johnson said, if George isn't retested, I'm not coming back to Garfield next year. I thought she was smart until I heard her say that. And gosh, I looked up at her. He, she's risking her, her career for me? No, it wasn't for me. She, I found out later she could have gone anywhere. She was one of the smartest, brightest teachers in the East Chicago Public Schools, but she chose us. There are stories within stories and within stories of all of us. And her story was this. I found out after graduating why she worked with some of us. She said to me, Oh, gosh, before I was going to college, she, uh, she took me out to buy a Coke and a hamburger. She said, George, I'm a minor, M-I-N-E-R, and my job is to find gems in schools like Garfield Elementary and to polish them and to dig them out and then let them go on and, and, and be successes. Wow. That was my Miss Johnson. Miss Guy says, okay, I will retest him, and if, and if he fails, you won't have to worry about coming back. Long story short, I tested out of special education, one of the first, and went on to become a member of the National Honor Society. It was there. She knew it. She got it out of me. She worked me. She, no shortcuts for her. Either you did the work or you didn't, and she would give honest evaluations, and I learned, and, that's, and that then set the pattern for my academic studies. No shortcuts for George. Don't give me something that I didn't earn, but when I earn it, give it to me. I'll close there and then fast forward. High school, I don't know how in the world she did it. My mother couldn't attend because she had a job that she had to go, and my father also was getting extra hours. So I, my graduate, high school graduation, I had no one representing me there. Uh, none of my relatives uh, came. They just routinely didn't go to things like that because they didn't have many graduations. The H's were seated in the last row, and how Miss Johnson pulled that off, I do not know. So I thought, this thing is all messed up. Something's wrong. The H's should be up there in the middle somewhere. I'm going to be sitting here, one of the last ones to walk across that stage. 
and Miss Johnson had her seat directly behind mine. Oh, that woman. And just before Henderson, George, was called, she kneeled over behind me and she whispered in my ear, this little light of mine, now it's time for him to shine. Go shine, George. And she sat back and smiled. That was my graduation present. A person who believed in me, who helped me to gain the educational skills that I needed, and never gave up on me. So why did I hate white people? Just without even knowing them? Because that's what we did in those days. We were taught to dislike people that we didn't know if they were either a threat to us or had something that we wanted. I wasn't a threat to her. I had knowledge. I had a potential, and she got it out of me, and she asked for nothing except that I perform. But why did I hate white people? Because that was how I survived, I was told. I could have survived another way. My mother told me a long time ago, you don't have to fight people to, to make friends, George. But it would take me many years to understand that. College. Over 200 kids graduated my senior year, Garfield, East Chicago, Washington High School. Four or five of us were, were black. Another three or four were Mexican-Americans. Three of us went to college. Over 250 of us. But only in such a small number, and none of the none of the Hispanics and Mexicans went to college. My father thought that college was a waste of time. I was 18. He had a couple of jobs that I could. I even worked in the same factory with him because we were off welfare and he had making good money. He said, "Okay, you're going to college. I'll see what I can do." Two days before it was time for me to take the bus to East Lansing, Michigan, Michigan State Agricultural and Mechanical College, as it was called then, my father gave me an envelope. He says, here's your college money, $75. He said, this is all that we can afford. And that was all that they could afford. That's all I ever got from them, from him, $75. But the track scholarship is never a full scholarship. We're minor sport. You, know, you as a golfer know mm -hmm. the, the deal there. Oh, I know the deal there. So, it's never a full ride. So uh, the, the coaches had arrangements. Mm -hmm. We would clean the, uh, the football stadium to make extra money. We would do lots of things to make mm -hmm. money. The money was there. The books and tuition were free. Uh, so I even worked in the, uh, in, in the dining hall where I, where I lived to, to make up for room and board. But there was a way, so I made a way. The best thing that happened to me was my sophomore year. The worst thing that happened to me in college was my freshman year. Michigan State, 1950, enrollment maybe 12,500, and of the 12,500, less than 100 were black. Most of us were athletes. And uh, and a larger number than athletes even were were graduate black graduate students from the South who because Southern states paid for blacks to go north to get a a, a master's degree. My well roughly forty forty black athletes 
eight, nine black females. Do the math. I did not have a date my freshman year. That was the most miserable time of my human life. Can you imagine an 18-year-old with no dates? But I survived. Sophomore year, five new black females. Wow, we call them a bumper crop. <laughs> I was captain of the track team, fast skid. So I saw this beautiful, slender, black freshman. We had an agreement at Michigan State. Uh, all the freshmen would meet at a special place before school started on, on, on the week before in the basement of the student union near the, near the bowling alley. And we had our own booths. And I looked across and I saw the freshman girls coming. And this slender, beautiful, and I rushed over to her because being the fastest, what the hell, I, was, I got there first. And I got as far as from here to the mic, and I said to her, baby, you know you love me, and we're going on a date. <laughs> My deprivation was over, <laughs> but not the way that I planned it. She said, not on your life. She didn't like me. She saw I was arrogant. Well, I was desperate. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I did. The Lord works in mysterious ways. One of my roommates was an African graduate student, and there was a system, but in the, the dating went, graduate students had the first pick in the lottery, then seniors to see where it went. Well, I was a sophomore. Was, life was still going to be bleak for me. But my roommate was a, was, a, was a PhD student, number one in the list. So he, he, he got a pick for a date, but he also got the flu. <laughs> and I said, can I buy your pick? He, at first, he wasn't too keen. He says, that's really cheating the system, isn't it? I says, no, 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 come on, let me buy the pick. I finally convinced him for $15, and he upped it to 25 and I agreed that I would have a date with Barbara Beard. I called her, and I said that uh, I'm, we're, we've got a date. I got the lottery. She said, you're a sophomore. I said, yeah, but I got the date. Finally, I talked, and she said, okay, here are the conditions. I buy my own ticket, and I said, yes. <laughs> I'll buy my own popcorn and candy. I said, yes, yes. And she said, and you will keep your hands to yourself. And I said, oh, boo. <laughs> that was our first date. I was a perfect gentleman. But after that date, the first date, uh, we went to a matinee. She said, would you like to go for coffee? Uh, we've got some time. I hated coffee. And when she says that, I love coffee. And on the coffee date, with Dunkin' Donuts, I remember we shared a donut and, uh, and we shared a cup of coffee. And that then led to George and Barbara, or is it Barbara and George? Oh, whatever. Anyhow, that was, that was the best thing that happened to me. One of the worst things that happened was this is during, during the time of the Korean conflict. And Michigan State was an agricultural school, and all of the males were in ROTC if you were physically able, which meant that we were being prepared to be second lieutenants. I remember my ROTC leadership lecture. We had a captain come in from, from, uh, from Korea. He said the average life expectancy of a second lieutenant in combat is 15 to 20 seconds. I dropped out of ROTC, and my draft board said, greetings. I wasn't going into the Army, so I volunteered for the Air Force. But before I left, I asked Barbara if she would marry me. I wasn't going to, I couldn't risk losing her. Here I am, 19-year-old kid asking uh, 16, 17-year-old, will you marry me? She said, yeah. 
and that was the beginning of the Hendersons. I did well in college, but I wasn't a stellar student, not in my first four years. I was surviving in my first four years. But after I got out, Barbara and I then moved to Detroit, and that's when life really unfolded for me. My first job was a social caseworker, and from there I was a, a social economist with the Housing Commission, which really was a community organizer in low-income housing neighborhoods. And then I, from there I moved to the Detroit Urban League, where my civil rights activities exploded. I became a director of community services of the Detroit Urban League, and that meant working with low-income Hispanic and black communities, mostly blacks, and helping them with whatever they needed. And it was that experience where I got a chance to work in the Hispanic communities with Father Clement Kearns, the Catholic Church, and he introduced me to Cesar Chavez. And Cesar Chavez talked about organizing the, uh, the Mexican workers in, 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 the, in California and the, the Far West. And I learned about labor tactics. That was a place where I met Martin Luther King Jr. as director of community service and helping in other ways. Here was this young man not much older than, than myself, a national leader. Wow. And shortly thereafter, I met Malcolm X. Same situation. They both had the kind of charisma that I can't really describe. I can try, but it's inadequate. You know charisma is when these individuals walk into the room, they suck the oxygen out. And figuratively, you know that you're in the presence of someone who indeed is destined to be something great. You have that feeling about them. Martin was pleased because I, and I was working for the Urban League, and the Urban League and the NAACP were really allies. Uh, Malcolm with uh, Honorable Elijah Muhammad was doing something else. But both of those organizations, all of those other organizations, were fighting for freedom of black people in different ways. My conversation with Malcolm stayed with me forever. After he tried to convince me, he says, I can't have a, an inadequate revolution without black intellectuals. I need the poets, the playwrights, and I need the, uh, the teachers. I need those of you supporting me, encouraging the young kids. And I knew what he was saying, but I, I said, Brother Malcolm, I, I, I can't do that. He said, can't? I said, okay, I won't do that. He said, then promise me, Brother Henderson, if you won't help me, that you promise you'll never hurt me. And I made that promise, and I kept that promise. But in my own way I then said to him, well, you promised not to hurt me, Malk? And he laughed, and we laughed. That friendship was a wonderful friendship, but back to Martin. I guess it was understanding that it was a movement that I somehow, a voice inside said to me, my mother's voice, you must be involved in this. You must help other people like you. The lesson, one of the foremost lessons that I learned from Martin was this. You know, the, 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 the strategy meetings would be in someone's house. That means that you had maybe three, four, sometimes five generations of black people in one household. Martin would come to those meetings if it was a meeting of individuals who were helping with money and, and, and organizing. And he would always be late. Maybe Baptist ministers are late because they can be. But in any case, he would be late. And I remember one pulling him aside. I said, Martin, you know we don't have much time. Why do you come in? You play with the kids. You tickle them. You ask their names. And why do you do that? And he looked at me almost in shock, as though I should, not, that I should have known why he did that. 
And then he patiently said, George, I play with the little ones and talk with them and, and find out what their names are because it's for them and not for us. And then I knew. From that moment on, what I did was not for George Henderson. It wasn't for awards and honors and anything else. It was for the, for the little ones and the next generations. And after that, I had a purpose. I had a goal. I had a strategy. I was ready. Okay. I received my doctorate, 1965, Educational Sociology. 1965, there were exactly 13 black PhDs in Educational Sociology. I could have gone anywhere. 13 of us. In the country? In the country. Wow. Nationally. Pick a coast, East Coast, West Coast, Midwest. I was set. And then when, I, then when I decided that I would step down, is that by that time I was assistant to the superintendent of Detroit Public Schools and decided that I want to teach full time. Whitney Young wanted me to join the National Urban League as the director of uh, education. And I, I said, no, I want to teach. And he said, that's where you should be. And uh, I, that felt good coming from him. But Oklahoma, remember now, 13 of us, I mean, supply and demand. Okay, here's George Henderson. I received a, received a call from Professor Richard Hilbert, chairman of the sociology department. He said, Dr. Henderson, I heard that you're on the market and you're ready to be a full-time uh, professor. Would you consider coming to Oklahoma? Uh, we have an associate professor position in education and with the College of Education. We had to put money together to, to get a decent salary. In my most arrogant northern voice, I said to him, Professor Hilbert, there's something that you need to know. He said, what? I said, I'm a Negro. He said, that's your problem. Would you like to come to Oklahoma? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone with a sense of humor like that certainly gets George's attention. Yeah. So I told Barbara, Honey, I'm going to Oklahoma. I'm not going to take a job, but I'm. But I, I then went to the inside to the Britannicas and, and and I looked up Oklahoma because I didn't know what the heck it was. I knew about Oklahoma because of Prentice Scott, because on the radio I heard about this black guy running up and down and doing wonderful things. So I said, Barbara, I'm going to Oklahoma. I'm going to see the football field where Prentice Scott played, and I'm going to see Indians, and then I'm coming back, and we're going to get serious about one of those other jobs. Well. My creator had a different different reason for me going to Oklahoma. It wasn't about my decision. It wasn't. It, honestly, it wasn't. Oklahoma, I had the largest lecture interview of any professor ever. I had individuals coming from the social and behavioral sciences and from the physical sciences, and you name a college or an academic discipline, they had a representative interviewing this guy from Detroit. 1967. 1967 is where the rioting erupted, the race riot. We live two blocks from where the riot erupted, and they wanted me to talk about the riot, and they were not interested in me as a professor. And I truthfully wasn't interested in the university as a professor until, I'll get to the until in a moment. For some reason, I think I know the reason, when I accepted George Lynn's Cross's formal invitation to come for a lecture interview, I put 
on the condition that I have two hours of free time with students. Why in the heck did I put that on there? But I did. When those, after a series of interviews, I, the, the two hours with the, with, with, with the students turned out to be two sociology students and two college of ed students. And they were driving around showing me the other Norman. They said, there are poor people in Norman too, Dr. Henderson, and they showed me where the poor people lived. Norman prided itself in being an affluent community. The students knew better. And one of them said, we need you here. You understand education, you understand sociology, and we have courses on the books that nobody's ever really taught them. And if you teach them, you teach them from a lived experience. And one of them, to seal the deal, says, Dr. Henderson, we know that you're going to get better offers in the University of Oklahoma. True. But we need you here, and also consider this. You're going to one of those other universities, you'll be a small fish in a big, in a big pond. You come here, you'll be a whale in this little pond. Yeah, appealed to me. Yeah, I'd be a whale here. Well, I tell myself that's the reason I accepted it wasn't. I accepted because I didn't have a choice. I accepted because my creator sent me to this place called Oklahoma, and I firmly believe that. Mm -hmm. Why do I believe that? Would a, would a sane man with a wife and seven children and a mother-in-law take a $5,000 pay cut to come to Oklahoma? No. no. I was certifiably insane. But my creator sent me there, and implicit in coming to Oklahoma, I got the message, you do your job, and I'll take care of the rest. And, and that bargain was kept. It was always enough money for my kids to do what they needed. But the other part of the deal in terms of the salaries and the consultings and the speaking, gosh, I had consulting ships and I had extra money. Money wasn't an issue, never been an issue for my kids. But what was an issue for them, this is my 53rd year here now, and I can say with a degree of pride and remorse, I've spent more time with other people's children than my own with their permission. Because what I came to do, I had to do face-to-face -face, and not intellectually. And what I had to do meant coming to Oklahoma to prove that I was not an imposter as a civil rights leader. It meant that I would have to live what I was teaching, and that meant being away from my children at long periods of time. The true hero in George Henderson's story is Barbara Henderson. She made it possible to do the things that, that uh, I've been given credit for doing. Actually, we did. Uh, coming to Norman was a tale of two cities. No sane person would bring his family into a community that did not want people like him living here. This was once a sundown town. So why are you here, black man, with all of these babies? My creator sent me here. But my creator sent me here with the kind of mate that had far more strength than I. Barbara came and we were subjected to things that people, no one has ever been subjected to coming to Norman since then. Garbage on the lawn, obscene phone calls at all hours, forbidding your children from answering the phone because of it. Cars egged, I didn't know what to do with egg on my car, so I got hot water and started to wash it off, ruin the paint. But I learned how to handle eggs after that. 
police stopping me and asking me why in the heck I was in this neighborhood, especially at night. And they would follow me until I walked up to the door, put the key in and opened the door and walked in and then they would leave. People driving by our house, shouting obscenities, calling me everything except George. Why would I subject myself and my children to this? Because the children were really the wedge that allowed the community to, to grow in this family. My children found friends, and we had a university school then, and mostly college professors and staff members had their children. You know, that was a great place. So they had friends. So Norman, for them, was a place where they had friends. They knew about the other stuff happening, but their friends were with them. I had friends, the, the quote, liberals at the university. They were with me. Barbara had Barbara. And the women who found her in, other, in this neighborhood and other neighborhoods went to her and said, anything that we can do for you, Barbara, we will do. How well did that work? This is my 53rd year here, and I'm usually introduced in Norman as Barbara's husband. Outside of Norman, Barbara's George's husband. Wife, I'm sorry. George, she could be that too. <laughs> As I think about it, yeah. uh, it, it, it felt right. Yeah. For all of the good things that we had, they were overcoming maybe half the number of bad things. And you, you, you put it on the scales and you, and you weigh it, it comes out unequal because equal on the side of good people. I had to be here. I had to come here. I had to come here because I spent all of my life living in an all-black neighborhoods, and I spent 10 years of my professional life advocating for integration in neighborhoods and churches and other places, and I didn't do that. Four of my students that when I was uh, an adjunct instructor at Wayne State University were freedom riders, white students. I didn't do that. But I'm encouraging this equality, the social uh, diversity and justice. And I didn't do those things, but I was preparing others to do those things. My creator sent me here to prove it. Are you real? Are you sincere? Or are you just another imposter? My children brought me kicking and screaming into being real because this became home for them. My children also, and my grandchildren, and then my great-grandchildren, really tested how how sincere are you when you say we need to accept all the people? And what about the LGBTQ people? Well, when I have them in my family, it sure looks different. What about people with disabilities? When one of your daughter has a disability, it looks a little different to you. I could go on and on and on. This wasn't talking theory about race. This was a living race. It felt right to me. And I reflect on my career. The career that I've had, I would have paid someone to let me teach. And I was paid to do what I was born to do, to be a bridge. That's more than you probably asked for one question, but here we are. That's... That's why Shannon said this is going to yeah. be a great time. Special. Yeah. Very special. And I know we're only just getting started. Because yeah. I know that there's definitely a lot more. Um, hey, guys. Sorry to cut this short. Um, this, was, this was such a good podcast. And there's so much more. 
but this was, I guess, the only good time, I think, in the episode to kind of cut it into two because part two is going to come next week. Um, Dr. George has, has done just so much. Uh, and, you know, just listening to that first 45 minutes of him tell his story up to, you know, up to coming to Norman and, and the second half of the podcast, we'll dive into his time in Norman and what he's done at OU and all the things that he's done, just the impact that he's had um, and that his family's had and his mother's had on him. I mean, it's, as you can tell, like in that episode, it's, it just speaks for itself. It's, it's just phenomenal. There's no words to explain I can't, I can't do it justice. Um, and the second half of the podcast gets even better. So, uh, again, I'm sorry if you're on the edge of your seat listening to this one. You're probably going to have to wait. You are going to have to wait till next week for part two. Um, but part two is just fantastic. So thanks for listening. Uh, thank you. Huge shout out to, to Shannon for co-hosting with me. So I can't even speak um, for co-hosting uh, this one with me. Um, we dive into a lot more questions, uh, you know, at, in the second half of the podcast. Um, but yeah, this episode is presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, uh, sharing Oklahoma stories through its people since 1929. They, they do a fantastic job, and I, it's an honor to be partnered with them. So please go follow them on Instagram at Oklahoma Hall of Fame. And then for anything, their events, go to their website, um, www.oklahomahalloffame.com. Uh, and don't forget to follow us at This Is Oklahoma. Thanks for listening, and part two is coming next week. Cheers. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram. This podcast was produced by Mike Hearn and Ian Weston, mixed by Alan Brown, with music by Chad Duro.